Today's reading is from Matthew 26, 17 through 30. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Jesus, Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Good morning. Uh, my name is Gabe Coyle, and I'm the campus pastor here at Christ Communities downtown campus. It's, it's great to see some warm smiles um, on Daylight Saving Time morning, so thank you for your energy and your passion to be here at the first service. Um, well, I, I was thinking about this passage this morning, and it made me think of this one experience I had at a restaurant. I remember as soon as Allie and I walked in the door, the first thing someone told us was, well, are you going to eat or are you just going to stand there? And it got worse. I remember as soon as we got to our seat, the waitress was rude, impatient, and downright sassy. I, I still remember asking her, you know, can I get a Coke? And she said, I'll get you anything if it'll shut you up. <laughs> and so, and it got, I mean, it got worse. I mean, every time, you know, over and over we'd ask these questions that seemed like really normal questions and we just felt like idiots, you know? Our food seemed as if it was nothing but an inconvenience. Like this, this, she had to go out of her way to bring us our food. And, and even, man, even our refills seemed to be like a chore to her. I remember asking at one point along the meal, I said, well, how do you do this day in and day out? And she said, well, if you want good service, there's hooters down the street. <laughs> she even got so frustrated at one point, uh, she threw straws at us. Um, and I have to tell you, <laughs> the whole experience was awesome. Uh, actually, Allie and I spent our whole time laughing and just thinking this is absolutely hilarious, and we gave her a really big tip. Now, <clears throat> no, I'm serious, like a big financial tip, like it was, it was a great experience. And, and I want you to know something. Before you start thinking that Allie and I are somehow masochists, okay, you need to understand the context. 
Um, we were at, and many, maybe some of you have heard of this place, is a restaurant called Ed DeBevix in Chicago. Now, <clears throat> Ed's has been around for about 30 years, and their big shtick is to serve great food with attitude. You know, I mean, even amongst their marketing, it's like tasty burgers with sassy servers. When you walk in, they've, they've got all kinds of signs up, and one of them, you know, reads, if you think you have reservations, you're in the wrong place. And then there's Ed's rules for waiting, last of which is eat and get out, you know. Um, this is the whole ethos of the place. <laughs> and, and so this is really important because the context of a meal always informs its content. The context of a meal, it always informs the content. It, knowing the context, where you are, why you are, informs how you're about to eat what you're going to eat and what you experience. Slowly, you can have patience with someone who appears very annoyed. You can be very forgiving with somebody who appears very angry. Knowing that the server is actually trying to be sassy on purpose, at least most of the time, um, it makes it a lot more manageable and you know how to go about your meal. The context of a meal always informs its content. And this couldn't be more true than when it comes to one of the most important things we do together as the church. One of the most important things we do together when we gather together in Jesus's name is eat together. And I'm not talking about the cookies, as good as they are. I'm talking about the Lord's Supper. And listen, okay, whether you've been in the church for years or this is your first Sunday, the Lord's Supper, some people call it communion, some people call it the Eucharist, right? It's weird, isn't it? And if you're not a Christian, it's really weird. Like the first time you see this going down, it kind of feels like an Ed DeBevix experience. You're trying to figure out what's going on because people call it a meal, but it's much more like snack size, right? You get a piece of bread here, then you dip it in a piece of juice there. And it's not necessarily hip enough to be called happy hour. You know, it's called supper, but we do it in the morning. It's weird, okay? And, and if you miss the context, you'll completely miss the content. And what's so amazing amidst this weird meal is that Jesus commands us to partake in it, to take, to eat, to drink. And if you miss the context, you're going to miss how amazing and what's so amazing about what Jesus is calling us to partake in. You're going to miss why Jesus, according to Jesus, breakfast isn't the most important meal of the day. And for the church, for his people, this meal is. Okay? Well, if you're new with us, um, we've been walking through Matthew, his gospel account. Matthew, who walked and talked with Jesus in the first century, he, he gives us this unique eyewitness account into who Jesus is, what he did, and therefore what it looks like to follow him. And not some vague imagination as to who he might have been or some false understanding of who he isn't, but who he actually is and what he actually did. And so today, we're going to see in our passage... When we seek to follow Jesus, that the Lord's Supper nourishes you like none other. The Lord's Supper nourishes you like none other. It, it engages our deepest aches, some of our deepest hungers. It energizes our tired steps. And it, it's not as if Jesus was setting up a restaurant chain that's in some way, shape, or form seeking to compete with like Michael Smith's or Jack Stack or Ed DeBevick's. That misses the point. But it deeply nourishes us. And to, to gain some greater clarity, this morning we're going to first look at the context of this meal here in Matthew. And then we're going to see how that informs the content of that meal for us today. Because the context of a meal always 
informs its content. So if you haven't already, please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew 26, verse 17. If you're using one of our community Bibles, it's found on page number 832. Now, the first thing we notice about the context of this meal in verse 17 is that the meal happens on Passover, which is the first night of a seven-day feast called the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which I love bread, so any feast that's like centered on bread, I can get really excited about. Mm, Who doesn't love bread? Now, both of these events, the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, they're connected to an event that was at the very center of every Israelite's identity. They both point back to the Exodus, where God redeemed Israel and brought them out of slavery in Egypt. These meals, they reminded every Jewish person as to who God is, how he was for them, and who they are in light of God's act in history. For example, during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, Israel was to only eat bread without leaven. So kind of a flat bread in essence, right? To remember that during the Exodus, God told Israel to leave Egypt in haste. So quick, in fact, that they couldn't even put leaven or yeast in their bread. Then there's the Passover meal, often called the Seder today. It was very structured. It had a set order, precise table arrangements and menu. It was done to recount this catalytic event as the Passover, which led to the Exodus. Now, if it's been a while, I I just thought this was important. If it's been a while since you've kind of recounted the Passover, maybe the last time you watched The Prince of Egypt or something along those lines or an old Charleston Heston version, God told the Pharaoh over Egypt that because Egypt, okay, would not free Israel from this unjust slavery, this was an oppressive slavery, He was going to send an angel of death to kill every firstborn son unless they trusted that God was God. And they expressed this trust by following his instruction to put the blood of a lamb on their doorposts. If the angel of death, when it came in, saw the blood of the lamb on the doorpost, then the angel of death would pass over, right, that home and spare the firstborn son. This was to be a sign that Israel's God was the true and exclusive and only God, not the oppressive gods of Egypt that had a distorted view of humanity, which led to the oppression of the Israelite people. Well, during the night, you heard thousands upon thousands of cries as thousands of firstborn sons were slain by the angel of death. And in the midst of this weeping, Egypt finally bowed the knee to the God of Israel. And they freed Israel from their oppressive slavery to become the people God had called them to be. So it's these two events, okay? The Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. These are the backdrop of our meal. This is the meal Jesus told his disciples to prepare, the Passover. Every one of the apostles would have this story of God's redemption of his people in mind when they sat down for supper. The food they ate, how they even ate it, it would tell this story to their senses. It was very interactive. We didn't have 4D back then, but this is about as good as you got. Well, it was a normal Passover evening in all accounts to some degree in Jerusalem. And Jesus, we find in our passage, he's at the table with those closest to him, those who knew him best, those who had been with him from the beginning, his 12 apostles. And then Jesus lays out the most awkward icebreaker ever, right? (laughs) It's like, hey, hey, guys, basically Jesus says, hey, I want you to really pay attention. I'm not joking around. One of you is going to betray me. And 
we know the rest of the story, right? Even Matthew, when he's telling us this, knows the rest of the story. We know it's Judas. But I want you to suspend that fact for a moment. And I want you to imagine being one of the other 11 apostles as they hear this accusation for the first time. I mean, this is Jesus. Too many times they felt really confident about something and Jesus was like, no, 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 you're dead wrong and you're dead in your sin. Too many times they felt really confident about something and Jesus says, no, 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 you're dead wrong. And so each of them begin to do this self-reflection, genuinely so. Is, is it I, Lord? Imagine being in that moment. I mean, how many times have you been in a work meeting that was called and the beginning of the meeting, your boss says, some of you have not been turning in your reports on time. What's one of the first thoughts that goes through your mind? Usually it goes something like this. Oh man, I hope that's not me. I don't think it's me. It couldn't be me, could it? Right? And you, you go through this cycle of self-doubt and self-reflection, and everyone is feeling the weight of Jesus' announcement. And so Jesus says this in response here in verse 23. He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. So everybody had dipped these bitter leaves in the dish together and remembering the Passover. This was an intimate act. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Someone who was so intimately connected to Jesus, who'd been with him from the beginning. I mean, you had the Passover meal with family and really close friends. And what Jesus says is the person who betrays him it would have been better if that man never existed. Whoa, right? And listen, no one was like, oh, okay, Jesus. It's Judas, right? Like no one figured this out. Like no one. Don't, don't, don't miss that. I mean, we know because we know the end of the story, but, but no one got it. Judas had done such a good job fitting in, such a good job masking his discontent that no one knew except for him and Jesus. And trying to keep up appearances, Judas tries to act just as caught off guard as everyone else. Is it I, Rabbi? I want you to imagine Judas in this moment. His heart is probably racing out of his chest. Maybe he thought Jesus didn't know. Surely he thought Jesus couldn't know. I mean, this is why he'd sold Jesus for a measly 30 pieces of silver just earlier. He was disillusioned with this Jesus and his quote-unquote kingdom. His heart was hardened. To Judas, Jesus was a fraud. So Judas, he just had to play it cool. He had to blend in. He just had to get through the night and say what he needed to say to look like everyone else. This is the perfect definition of hypocrisy. Is it I, Rabbi? But there's one problem with Judas' logic. Jesus isn't a fraud. He knows what's happened and he knows what will happen. And Jesus says, what in our text? You have said so. In other words, and this is a unique way of responding. In other words, he's saying, don't play games with me, Judas. You know who you are and so do I. But he says it in such a way that only he and Judas, like the way that the language is constructed, Judas would pick up on it. And Matthew, he wants us to know something about Jesus in this moment, okay? Matthew's really important, make, makes, goes to great lengths to highlight that Jesus knows that Judas will betray him and he is the betrayer. He wants us to know that Jesus isn't surprised by Judas's betrayal. 
No one else saw this coming. I mean, no one. In John's gospel account, we see that Judas leaves the meal right about this time because Judas, his hypocrisy was so good. When he leaves, nobody thinks he's a betray- the betrayer at this moment. Like still, they don't get it. They come up with all these other justifications. Oh, he's probably going to take care of the poor. Oh, he's going to do this special task for Jesus. But nobody thought he was the betrayer even when he leaves the meal right after this conversation. No one knew it was Judas, but Jesus. And I asked myself, why is this so important? Why does Matthew go to great lengths to highlight that Jesus knows this? And it's because here we see that Jesus was always in control of his supper. Now, as a parent (laughs) with two kids under the age of four, there are plenty of times where I have completely lost control of dinner. Um, okay, yeah, throw your milk on the ground for the 20th time. We're done. You know, like it's, it's all, we're throwing in the towel here. You own the table for these next five minutes until we can clean everything up. But for Jesus, he never ever loses control of his supper. You see, Jesus isn't caught off guard by evil. Jesus didn't need to regroup. This wasn't an accident. It's not like Jesus was like, oh, 11 out of 12 ain't bad. <laughs> Pretty good odds. I want you to think about this. Jesus lets Judas betray him, knowing full well when Jesus chose the 12 apostles, those who would be closest to him, he knew Judas would betray him. When he looked in Judas's eyes, Jesus knew Judas would never give him his heart. When Jesus sent the 12 out earlier to proclaim the kingdom, he knew Judas would never fully understand or come to terms with the true kingdom in which he's proclaiming. He knew it would come to this moment at the dinner. And not even Judas really knew. I mean, Judas chose to follow Jesus early on. He continued following Jesus even when it was difficult. And then he persisted with Jesus even when it took significant effort because he wanted to get something out of Jesus. And he became more and more clever at being a hypocrite, trying to cover up what was really going on in his heart. No one forced Judas's hand. Judas was responsible for his betrayal, and he will bear the guilt for his betrayal for all eternity. But why? I kept sitting there. Why is this so important? If Jesus knew Judas was going to betray him, why do this? Why let us know this? None of this makes any sense unless we understand that the plan ordained before the foundation of the world was that Jesus was to come, be betrayed, and die for the sins of the world, as we see in Matthew chapter 1, verse 29. Right there from the get-go. You see, what Judas meant for evil, God in his infinite wisdom uses for good, weaving together, as the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, all things according to the counsel of his will. God's not culpable for evil, and Judas is fully responsible, but in God's infinite wisdom is able to navigate all of these pieces to bring about the salvation of the world. You see, Jesus was always in control of his supper because Jesus is always in control. Jesus isn't caught off guard by suffering, by pain, by evil. Not in your life or mine. Nothing catches Jesus off guard, not even his own betrayal. And you know what that means? You know how this makes the gospel so unbelievably beautiful? He's not a helpless victim on the cross. 
But here's another prime example of Jesus. Almighty God, Alpha and Omega, beginning and end, the Son of God became flesh willingly, choosing to be betrayed and die for you and me. This wasn't an accident. He didn't mess up, but willingly chose this hard road and to be betrayed so that we might know salvation. No one forced his hand. No one fooled him into this. Jesus knew it all, and he came anyway, working all things together so that he might bring about a redemption better than the Passover, that he might bring about an exodus even more astounding than the one of the nation of Israel out of Egypt that now spans to all nations and all peoples, as we see in Revelation, so that every tribe and tongue is represented in now in the people of God. You see this context? When you understand that, it completely transforms the content of the Lord's Supper. You see, the Lord's Supper isn't something that just happened to Jesus. It's a supper that Jesus made happen. And so here, when we partake as the people of Jesus in the name of Jesus, we're nourished in the depths of our souls with three life-altering truths every time we partake. It's a meal that's proclaiming a story to our senses. And when you know and when you own the story, you don't just see bread and juice anymore. Instead, when we know Jesus was always in control of his supper because Jesus is always in control, then when you see bread, you see that Jesus offers his body. It wasn't taken. Jesus offers his body to us. It wasn't taken. You know, the, the fundamental nature of God is that he's sitting at a table inviting you to a feast you cannot afford to foods more richly desirable than we ever thought possible. God is so for you. Don't miss it. God is so for you that he was broken for you and he made that decision to be broken for you. He wasn't forced. He wasn't tricked. He wasn't duped. But he orchestrated the very movements of history itself that out of love for you, he might die for you so that he can be with you. And here in simple bread and juice, Jesus is telling us that he offers himself willingly and longingly, knowing that in him alone is the source of life and life eternal. So first we see that Jesus offers his body. It wasn't taken. Secondly, when we know Jesus was always in control of his supper, because Jesus is always in control, we see in the juice that Jesus' blood has the final word, not your sin. Jesus' blood has the final word, not your, not your addiction, your destructive behaviors, those relational failures, those areas of deep brokenness, not your sin. They don't have the final say over your life, over who you are. And I can't say this enough. Wherever you've been, whatever you've done, Jesus' blood has the final word, not your sin. Remember the apostles, they sat down to remember Passover. To remember when the angel of death saw the blood of the lamb on the doorposts and spared houses of people in Egypt. To remember when God redeemed his people and Jesus says, he is that new and better lamb. Only a human being can fully represent human beings, but only God can sufficiently pay the debt that we owe because of our treason against our creator. And so in Jesus, the God man, we find our debt paid in full and his blood, the sufficient 
payment. And so we find a new meal. Telling of a new promise, a new covenant. For all who trust in God's work in the death and resurrection of Jesus. No matter what you've done this last week, last night, or this morning, or even when you go home today. For all who rest in Jesus' finishes, finished work on the cross, your sin does not have the final word on your life if you but trust in Jesus. So Jesus' blood has the final word, not your sin. And lastly, since Jesus was always in control of his supper, because Jesus is always in control, we see in simple juice and bread that Jesus will finish what he started. It won't always be like this. It won't be like this forever. Remember, this bread and juice, it represents who? A crucified king. The world as it is wanted nothing to do with him. With every heartache, besetting sin and struggle, we hear the world ache for her king. And in the meal, we hear his promise to come again, but this time with his kingdom. And he'll finish the good work he started in you, the good work he started in me, and the good work he has started this world over. And you know what that means? Justice will be established. Grief will be nothing more but, the, but a distant nightmare. And pain will be gone forever. And honestly, I need to hear that today. I need to know that Jesus will finish what he started. I need to hear that week in and week out. And I come with my own struggles, my own pains, my own questions. And as beautiful as this meal is, that Jesus has commanded us to come and partake in, where we see that Jesus offers his body, it wasn't taken from him, where Jesus' blood has the final word, not our sin, where Jesus says that he'll finish what he started, that it won't be like this forever, even still, it's but a rehearsal dinner. You know, I remember on our rehearsal dinner when, I, when Allie and I were about to get married. You have family, right? You've got f- close friends that are gathered around. You're eating rich food. You're laughing. You're, you're sharing presents. But I still remember, even after that rehearsal dinner, the biggest takeaway for me is just how much it actually stirred up the anticipation for the next day. It's like, that was good, but man, I can't wait for the wedding feast tomorrow. I can't wait for Allie to be mine and for me to be hers forever. Like, I couldn't wait. It just stirred up the anticipation. Please listen. If you proclaim Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you are a part of the bride of Christ. The Apostle Paul tells us this in Ephesians chapter 5. And we eat together in anticipation for that celebration that is to come, this great marriage supper of the Lamb we see in Revelation chapter 19. And listen, this wedding can't be stopped. This meal is our rehearsal dinner this morning that we're going to partake in and here in a moment. For Christ, our bridegroom, he has stated his undying love in his death and his resurrection And one day he will gather up his people throughout history and this world over and we will feast in the house of Zion into eternity. We're not going to look through a glass dimly. We're not going to need bread and juice to remember, but we will see Jesus as he is. And we will be with him where he is forever. So knowing the context of this meal, it informs the content 
And so we come to eat and drink. For all who call Jesus Lord and Savior, we come and we partake. And we're nourished in the depths of our calling, remembering that none of this is by accident. Jesus was always in control of his supper because Jesus is always in control. And even now, wherever you find yourself, when we come and partake in the bread, we remember that Jesus offers his body freely. It wasn't taken. We dip in the cup and we remember Jesus' blood has the final word, not your sin. And when we eat and drink, we know that Jesus will finish what he started in you and me this world over. And we partake in this rehearsal dinner, knowing that the feast is soon at hand, that the sun is about to rise. And in Jesus' name, we take, we eat, and we drink in remembrance of him. Let's pray. God, we are embodied people. You have created us first. And called us as followers of Jesus, second. We are creatures before we are Christians. And God, we are embodied people and you've given us a meal that proclaims the message, this good news of Jesus to our senses of taste and touch and smell. Such that it impacts us as whole people. God, I pray that in this moment we would remember to the depths of who we are what you have done for us and that you did so freely. It was not by accident. It wasn't plan B. But it was always ordained that we might know the great depths and the heights of the love of Christ. Oh God, may you preach this afresh to us through the Lord's Supper this morning. And may it nourish us to carry out your mission this world over. In a moment, we're going to partake in the Lord's Supper. But before we come, I want us to take a moment of silence. A moment where, much like the disciples, spent a moment of self-reflection. But now this side of the cross, we no longer ask, is it I, Lord? Because we look at the cross and we know it was us. Instead, we look at the cross. We acknowledge and we confess, it was for me, Lord. That while we were yet sinners, yes, even betrayers, Christ died for us. And he did so willingly, if we'll but receive him for who he is and what he has done. So let us take but a moment to remember and confess in the quietness of our hearts before we come.